I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Kendra Kruger. And this is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, June 15th, 2015. Coming up, we hear from Gerald Pollack. He's a bioengineering professor at the University of Washington about the physics of water and why young scientists are often discouraged to study it. begin with a look at the recent news in science. There's a new raging battle against sexism in science, and the weapon of choice is wit. In case you haven't read about it yet or joined in yourself, check out the Twitter sphere for some laughs using the hashtag distractinglysexy. Last week, British scientist and Nobel Prize winner Tim Hunt sparked an online firestorm when, thinking he was beyond reach of the conference mic, said, quote, The trouble with girls, unquote, in science labs is that, quote, they fall in love with you and when you criticize them, they cry. So since then, scientists from around the world, female and male, have been mocking Tim Hunt by tweeting photos of themselves and others being, quote, distractingly sexy, unquote, at work. The feminist site La Vagenda created the hashtag and prompted the humorous yet piercing outcry. Last Thursday, Hunt resigned from his honorary post at University College London. That was after he made his foot-in-mouth apology, which was, I'm really, really sorry I caused an offense. That's awful. I certainly didn't mean that. I just meant to be honest, actually. So he went on to say that having women in labs is, quote, very disruptive to the science, unquote. So it's not too late to join the Twitter conversation using the hashtag DistractinglySexy if you're a scientist, a science journalist, or someone who knows and appreciates scientists. Strengthen this weapon of wit used against sexism, which clearly, alas, still persists in the sciences. During cell division, the chromosomes have to line up just right, kind of like the dancers in a chorus line. Then the set of fibers that pull the chromosomes apart, the mitotic spindle, can distribute an identical set to the two daughter cells. Cell biologists have described this checkpoint, which pauses cell division until all the chromosomes are properly arranged on the spindle. But until recently, the molecular mechanism underlying the checkpoint was not understood. A group of scientists from the Netherlands Cancer Institute explained the molecular mystery. The place on the chromosome that attaches to the spindle is called the kinetochore, a protein called MSP. MPS1 binds to a second protein in the kinetochore. When MPS1 is attached there, it's like a pause button, putting cell division on hold. When the chromosome becomes properly attached to the spindle, proteins of the spindle compete for binding to the same site on the kinetochore. Then once the kinetochore is properly attached, MPS1 is forced off and the pause button is released, allowing the cell division process to proceed. On the science calendar this week, for those who like to mix science and booze, come join the monthly science lounge at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. It's this Thursday night. Well, not just booze, but mind-expanding science cocktails, so they say. 
The event, which happens every third Thursday of the month, will be themed Explorers Unite. While playing in a Geek Cup Challenge, or not playing, you can freely roam the darkest stretches of the museum's depths, and you can explore them with the ancient and modern tools. Well, I'm intrigued. The lounge will run from 6.30 to 9.30 Thursday night. For more information, you can just do a Google search, The Science Lounge at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Also this week, come check out some science workshop for kids at the CU Natural History Museum. This year's theme is Leaving Your Mark in conjunction with the new exhibit, Steps in Stone, Walking Through Time. Come and learn how ancient animals from the very large to the very small left evidence of their lives. The archaeology days at the museum will show kids how humans left their mark and what we can learn about ancient cultures from the artifacts we find. Each workshop meets for three hours from 9 a.m. to noon on Friday mornings, June 12th through August 7th at the CU Museum of Natural History on the CU Boulder campus. Snacks will be provided. Advanced registration is required, so email museumed at colorado.edu. That's museumed at colorado.edu. Water, water everywhere. But why is it so weird? You may not realize this, but the simple fact that an ice cube can float in water is, according to our current understanding of thermodynamics, just bizarre. Most elements in their solid form shrink and become less dense. But as you may know from a cracked frozen water bottle, ice expands. That's just one of the many bizarre properties of this fairly simple H2O substance. Being a bit of a connoisseur for scientific anomalies, I decided to find out more. I came across a book called The Fourth Phase of Water, written by Professor of Bioengineering Gerald Pollack from the University of Washington in Seattle. Little did I know that water has become a bit of a rabbit hole, because when I sat down with him, he began to explain to me how the science of water has become the equivalent of epicycle astronomy. You know, back in the days of Galileo, when they could obviously see the motion of the planets going forwards and backwards in the sky. But instead of believing that the sun and not the earth was the center of the solar system, they had to create these hugely complicated mechanics to explain why planets went retrograde backwards in the sky. And Jerry says the same overcomplication is happening with water. The field of water research, like many other fields of research, the, the, um, the story that, uh, the, the threads that weave the story are very complicated threads. It seems that you need more and more presumptions, uh, that is, epicycles, to, to account for the phenomena that you see. Um, so many people like to call them anomalies. If you look on the web, you find that the, the understanding of water, that water contains so many anomalies. I think at last count there were 60 or 70 anomalies, that is, behaviors that don't exactly fit with, uh, with the, with, with the uh, prevailing paradigm or prevailing picture. And so you begin to wonder if the number of anomalies keeps growing is there really something wrong, or, or is it just that 
nature is really so complicated that you need not only cycles but epicycles and epicycles upon epicycles to explain what's really going on. According to Jerry and his colleagues, these epicycles are just a result of failing to understand fundamentals and allowing our perspective to change, say, from viewing the Earth as the center of the solar system to instead the sun. But with water, we must change our perspective from the solo, independent, lonely water molecule to the group, the mass, the collection of thousands, millions of water molecules, because it is the social behavior of water where things get interesting. A water molecule all on its own consists of two hydrogen and one oxygen atom. In this configuration, the total charge on the molecule is neutral, net zero. But as all these molecules start bouncing around, there's a tendency for the molecules to start swapping hydrogen. This results in some positively charged molecules known as hydronium, H3O, and negatively charged hydroxide, OH, molecules. Now, in a typical glass of water, all of these negative and positive ions will balance out to zero again. But when you introduce a hydrophilic, that's water-loving, surface, things start to organize. We found that um, when, when water, ordinary water, is put next to some kind of uh, material, the water changes its structure qualitatively. It's an enormous change of structure. It's not just one layer of molecules that is adjacent to the surface that changes. It's millions of layers, millions of layers of molecules that undergo this profound change. It's actually not new. This has been known for a hundred years, but people have forgotten about this kind of change. And I think that it's their forgetfulness that has led to this huge complication. We confirmed this uh, using our, our methods. And what we found, the reason for the word exclusion zone, is that we found that this, this zone of water that changes profoundly in its structure excludes almost everything. It's like a crystal. It's kind of almost like ice that forms. And it's a large, a relatively large region. So we found that, that, um, that if we put, uh, for example, particles or little spheres that we call microspheres, we put it into the water, they were excluded from this region. And it's a large region. We're talking about hundreds of micrometers, that is a fraction of a millimeter, you can almost see it with your naked eye. It's that big, and it excludes almost everything. Scientists call this the exclusion zone, an area where there is long-range order of water molecules. This water is unique, spatially bound, and can exist in significant quantities, thus classifying it as an entirely different state or phase, which is why this could be the fourth phase of water. We measured uh, no fewer than 10 different physical chemical properties of this water, and every one of them was different from ordinary water. So you might call it a phase of water, you might call it a, a, even a different chemical. It's distinctly different from water, and, and, and this is this has been known for, for many years. It's just that we studied it, we confirmed it. So, this fourth phase of water, what is it? What is it doing? What effect is it having? Well, let us not forget that water is essential to life as we know it. 
It's the signature we look for when determining if extraterrestrial life is possible on other planets beyond the solar system. Our bodies are 60% water. Blood is 92% water. Muscles, 75%. Plus, most of the surfaces in our cells are hydrophilic, meaning exclusion zone water. So what role does this fourth phase of water play in biology? This issue is well known among, among biologists, but less uh, uh, by lay people, that cells are actually not neutral. They're negatively charged. And for 60 years, people have speculated on the reason that these cells are negatively charged. And the speculations in, include invoking various kinds of pumps and channels in the cell membrane. In fact, a very simple explanation of why the cell is negatively charged is that its main component is negatively charged. The easy water that fills the cell has negative charge. And we think that that's the reason why cells are negatively charged. So you're basically a, a, collection, of, a collection of cells, and you're a collection of negatively charged cells, and it's no surprise, actually, that you are negatively charged. We've made measurements on people. People are negatively charged. They're not neutral. Okay, so charged regions are forming, but... Doesn't that require energy? This may be a problem we need to shed some light on. We couldn't figure out for several years where the energy came from. You know, to, to, um, it's sort of like recharging a battery. You know, in terms of your cell phone, you plug in the battery to 110 volts, and you wait a while, and pretty soon it's recharged. This is a battery, just like your cell phone battery, but it wasn't clear to us how you could charge this battery until a student, an undergraduate student in the lab, one day walked in and we were doing an experiment. He took a lamp nearby and he shined the lamp on the chamber. And we looked in the microscope and sure enough, the exclusion zone grew by leaps and bounds. And so uh, it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that, you know, if, if light expands the exclusion zone, then, hey, maybe light is responsible for electromagnetic energy, light, same thing responsible for building this exclusion zone. And, and that was the clue, that was the trigger. And it was followed by many experiments, and those experiments showed very clearly that light was the agent, that, that the energy, photons, are the, it's the energy that builds the exclusion zone. If you are just joining us, you are listening to KGNU Boulder, Denver, and this is How on Earth, where we are talking with... Gerald Pollack, University of Washington bioengineer, about why water is so weird. Back to the science. In Jerry's book, The Fourth Phase of Water, he breaks down the theory of water into four principles, three of which we've covered so far. Exclusion zones, easy, water holds a charge, water can be charged by light. But the fourth is more of a paradigm change. Not that it's any new information, but again, a real change in perspective. Think about two negatively charged particles placed in a sea of water. What happens to the distance between them? Well, like charges repel, right? So the distance should increase, right? Wrong. Turns out the opposite will take place. And as Jerry explains it, it's because like, like, like. See would absolutely expect that the like-charged entities 
would repel each other and distance would increase. So why is it the opposite? Well, Feynman said like, likes, like, and what he meant was like charges like each other and so you know if you like each other you come closer together you approach one another so he said well you know like likes like because of an intermediate of unlike so in other words if the two particles have negative charge what happens is that positive charges build in between those two negatives and pull those two negatives together. So the positive charge in between is like an attractor. The only question is, well, where do those unlikes come from? The unlikes, it was clear, um, they all knew that there had to be some positive charge in between those negatives, but only recently has it become clear where they come from. It comes from the splitting of water and the building of EZ that, that produces negatively charged EZ around each of those two particles and protons released. And those protons are what gathers in between the two negatively charged particles with EZ and pulls them together. So, so that's like, likes, like, and it's a kind of paradox, but I think the paradox is now resolved. And so, you know, if you start with the premise of the opposite of what actually happens, there's no way that you're going to get to the right answer. It becomes very, very complicated, and that's happened too much. So why is it that it's taken so long for science to get it right on water? Well, for one thing, water has become very controversial due to a few stories in history that caused an enormous uproar in the scientific community. The first is the story of polywater, set in Cold War times when communist Russia was ostracized from the scientific community. A physical chemist named Boris Deregan found that water contained in small capillaries acted much differently than ordinary water and in fact acted more like a polymer. With the McCarthy climate of the time, an accusation soon arose that the work was fraudulent and contained gross errors and contaminations. That blemish stemmed a huge stigma around the field of water, which discouraged many scientists from getting involved. Until an immunologist named Jacques Bienveniste and the story of water memory. A then famous uh, immunologist, Jacques Benveniste, who was working in Paris, he's now become a hero, but he was no hero at that time. He was proposing that water had memory of information that it received by being, having been in contact with other molecules. Of course, that sounds preposterous, and, and it sounded preposterous also to the editor of the journal Nature, who said after they submitted a paper, no way, we won't even look at it because if you're right, everybody else is wrong. And if everybody else is wrong, that just can't be, and therefore we're not publishing your paper. So Ben Venice, being a clever fellow and a sincere scientist, he thought, well, how can I circumvent this? this blockage. He asked colleagues in several different laboratories in different countries to repeat his protocols exactly. They got the same result and submitted their paper to uh, Nature, and still the reaction was the same. I don't care how many people repeat it, said <laughs> Sir John Maddox. It can't be correct. And finally, there was huge pressure because uh, from from, from the uh, Paris homeopathic community because the experiments that Benveniste did that involved uh, or the, the conclusion of water memory actually involved serial dilutions, which is what the homeopaths use. And, and, and so the homeopathic community was enraged 
by the uh, uh, constant refusal to even permit uh, Ben Venist and his work to, to publish their work. So they were under pressure, and once I, I visited uh, Jacques, the late Jacques Benveniste's laboratory, and he told me he got a call right there on that telephone from Sir John Maddox, and Maddox said, I'll make a deal with you, I'll publish it. However, we're going to send a committee of peers to Paris from London to look over your shoulder and, and see what you're doing. And So the well-known story, the uh, committee of peers came, uh, the paper was published uh, with a disclaimer saying, you know, we're not sure about this, but we're publishing this in the name of fairness. So they sent a committee. The committee consisted of three people. One was the editor himself, who was a physicist and had no experience with the biological kinds of experiments that were being done. The second peer was the amazing Randy, a magician of high repute, uh, who's a famous skeptic. And the third was actually, in, in a sense, another skeptic, uh, someone who worked in the Office of Scientific Integrity at the National Institutes of Health, Walter Stewart. And, and he was a sleuth uh, who, uh, who was in charge of figuring out frauds that were being perpetrated. So this was obviously a commando committee uh, looking to find what was wrong. And indeed, they found what was wrong or they, what they contended to be wrong. In the first couple of days, the technician who was responsible for doing the experiments did them the first couple of days and got the, the same as the published result. And then the third day, it was one of the committee members, of Walter Stewart, who did the dilutions, and uh, they found that it didn't work, and so they huddled in, in, in their hotel room and they decided that, well... Gee, you know, since when the French do the experiments, it works. And when we do the experiment, it doesn't work. Therefore, it must be some kind of trick. And I, I should, before I forget, I should mention that this has now been repeated countless times with confirmation of, of, of the result in many laboratories. And at our annual conference uh, on the physics, chemistry, and biology of water, this is taken as a fact. There's no question about it anymore. There's no controversy that exists. It's just that... The, the people who are on the other side of the controversy apparently are not aware of or fail to take account of, of, of the number of times this has been repeated and confirmed. So, so anyway, that was the second debacle, and those two debacles set water back decades because, again, few people had the courage to venture into something as putatively controversial as, as water. As Gerald and his colleagues reopen the door to water, what new things will we discover? And what other phenomenon are out there that have been shied away from due to controversy? Check out our blog later today for an extended interview with Gerald on the climate of scientific community and what resources are now out there for the rigorous and open-minded. His book again is The Fourth Phase of Water. Check it out and log on to our website at howonearthradio.org. In the night, the hidden systems, they move in hidden rhythms. Oh, 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 oh,
that's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is myself, Susan Moran. This week's show was produced and engineered by my co-host here, Kendra Kruger. Additional contributions from Beth Bennett. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from L1011, Phil Glass, Lossel, and Bright Archer. Visit our website, howonearthradio.org, to find past episodes and extended interviews. You can also subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Kendra Kruger. And I'm Susan Moran.